Hi, everyone, and welcome to the NKBA On The Road podcast. My name is Pamela McNally, and I'm the SVP of Marketing and Digital, and I'm going to be your series host, talking with people who I meet at different events, conferences, and meetings. And before I forget, this podcast is worth one half of a CEU credit. Before we start, I'd like to thank Decor for sponsoring this podcast and as always being such a great NKBA partner. In today's episode, I'm talking with Avi Rajagapal, editor-in-chief of Metropolis Magazine and sustainability expert who I met with in New York about how sustainability design has evolved to become more accessible, economical, and efficient if approached the right way. Avi, I'm so happy to have you on my podcast to talk about what I know is one of your favorite subjects. Thanks so much, Pam. Yeah, of course, it is one of my favorite subjects, and it's a hugely exciting area for designers to be involved in today. So super happy to talk to you about it. Well, thank you for taking time out. Um, So let's dive right in. So I'm going to ask a question that I've been mulling over for quite a while now. Um, You know, what is the status of sustainable design today in the industry? Because we talk a lot about it, but is it really gaining ground or are those still those stubborn preconceived notions that, you know, we talk about is too costly. We'll add to my project timeline. Uh, I can't find the brands that I like. Or my favorite is my clients don't want it. (laughs) We still hear all of those things because all of those things are still true to some extent in designers experience. But we have also come leaps and bounds. So it's useful when we're thinking about the status of sustainable design today to remember that, you know, in the real world, how much people are willing to invest in sustainable design what options are out there in terms of products, how much information designers have to make the right choices, depends on what you're designing, who you're designing for, what project budgets are at the moment. So we've seen huge movement in corporate America with some big commitments around sustainability, and that has definitely moved the needle on commercial projects. Um, In the hospitality space, There's a lot of interest, especially from, you know, multi-property operators, um, some of the big hospitality brands to really move the needle on sustainable design. So designers and architects who work in those spaces are lucky enough to have more client support, I would say. Um, When we're talking about multifamily residential and single family homes, um, especially, you know, for all the folks who design kitchens and baths, um, it is still a challenging landscape and we have to acknowledge that. Um, But some of that is changing. Um, It is changing because the policy landscape is changing a little bit. There are incentives for homeowners um, who put in, you know, water efficient appliances, for instance, or energy efficient appliances. In those areas, maybe designers don't have the information yet. So, you know, we're, we're navigating a time of change. One thing is for sure that nobody think nobody would say it's not the right thing to do. But, you know, sometimes people need good reasons to do the right thing. And so, you know, um, we it's I think as an industry and as a profession, uh, we have to start to reinforce those reasons and give people the support they need to do the right thing. So let's talk about that for a second. So let's let's focus on residential kitchen and bath. Um, Where do they go for the support? Where do they go to find out what resources they have and where do they go to get the information that they need? To be able to say, you know, at least do uh, a partly sustainable project, um, you know, where do they go for that? There is a few places, mm-hmm. um, you know, of course, interior design organizations uh, like ASID, IIDA, NEWH have a whole bunch of resources available. 
um, that include resources for residential designers. Um, another, even NKBA does. Let me just throw that in there. Even the NKBA does. Okay, that's true. So of course, your own association NKBA, um, you should look to them too. Another good place to look for support is actually from your manufacturers and your product vendors, right? There are, and we know them, there are product manufacturers who've made big commitments to sustainability in a number of product categories in the kitchen and bath space. So in surfaces, there are a few folks, um, in, you know, uh, fixtures, there are a few folks, uh, you know, you might look to them, even if you're not going to specify their products, you might go just educate yourself about what they're doing so that you know what the highest standard possible is today. Um, beyond that, you know, I think it is still very much a field where, um, you know, you have to educate yourself, you have to work with your clients. Uh, every project is going to feel like a new learning experience. But these are, I think, essential skills that all designers have to build today because, you know, we're preparing for a future where we know that these concerns are going to become really paramount. Um, there will come a time, California is already doing it. There are going to be other player parts of this country that regulate how much water you can use, how much energy you can use. There are going to be mandates on recycled content, on waste, on demolition, you're not going to be able to just tear out a kitchen, toss it in the landfill and put a new one in its place. So you have to think of this as training time. <laughs> you know, so you have to you have to learn and you have to get up to speed, not because the demand already exists today, but every indicator is showing that the demand is coming. Well, the good news is that we do have an organization that once you take out your kitchen and it passes muster, that they reuse it. So Renovation Angel will come. You know them. I'm sure you do. Love the work they do. Absolutely love the work they do. Huge shout out to them. And I feel like they are definitely trying to um, go more national. I know the one thing that people do talk about is that it's difficult, right? That it's very difficult to pass their kind of inspection. So I know that they're working on new ideas and programs to kind of expand um, how they handle it. But I, I agree. I think they're doing a great job. And I wish there were more um, organizations like that um, in the kitchen and bath space. So let me get back to what you're saying about, you know, going to the manufacturer, learning from the manufacturer, 100% agree. But so tell me who you think is doing it right. Um, you know, who is doing it right from a manufacturing standpoint? And you talk about products. So what brands are really, you know, pushing forward um, into the sustainability arena and can be my guide, per se, for, you know, what to choose, how to choose um, in design? I would say in the fixtures and surfaces spaces, many brands are making moves in the right direction. And so the good thing is you actually have a gamut of options at many different price points um, to satisfy, you know, different project timelines and, and leads and so on. What do I mean by that? So in the surfaces area, for instance, um, you know, Cosentino, who is, you know, a Spain-based manufacturer, um, has had their entire decked online carbon neutral certified. They're using recycled content in many of their product lines. But also, you know, folks like Cambria, you know, homegrown North American brand are, are including a ton of recycled content. They are recycling their own waste into their surface materials, right? Um, so there's a lot of folks, even in, um, you know, categories where, recycling has always been very, very challenging in the past. 
Ceramic tiles is a great example. It's very hard to for a manufacturer to implement recycling in ceramic tiles. And even there, we have a homegrown brand, Crossville. We have an Italian brand, Florim, who have made huge progress, you know, in that category. So I would say, you know, at every, at many price points and in many different sort of, um, you know, both in American US brands, as well as international brands, um, there's progress in the surfaces space. Um, it's similar for fixtures. Um, you know, Kohler, of course, comes to mind as, you know, having made some really big advances, um, especially in terms of water efficiency. But there are sustainable options with almost every fixtures brand. Um, the, you know, Lixil family of brands, which includes American Standard, DXV, and Groa, um, have not just water saving fixtures, but they even have great like sensors and kind of those behind the scenes things that your contractors will be very happy with, um, you know, for you to put into that space. So lots of progress and really a lot to be optimistic about. So um, just like when we talk about smart tech, right, in the kitchen and bath, a lot of times the contractor, you need a special contractor. So let me ask you, when you talk about some of the sensors and things, um, you know, to help us be sustainable, particularly when it comes to water usage, do you need a special installer? Do you need, or is that something that you would get through a manufacturer? You know, talk to me a little about what your needs are when you go in that direction. So, you know, the good thing is that manufacturers are not blind to the fact that sometimes when they introduce a new technology, they need, you know, um, they need education with installers, contractors, and fabricators. So if you look at, you know, somebody like Infinity Drain, um, who've developed, you know, a new shower tray system, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to install water saving, you know, has really great sustainability performance. Um, or if you look at the, the system I mentioned with Groy, which is a smart, you know, water management system, they actually, as part of the product, offer resources um, for fabricators and for installers. So some of those things, yes, do need, you know, specific, um, it's not skills, it's just, you have to understand the sensitivities, you don't want to install it wrong, and then have it not perform as it's intended to be. Other things like a carbon neutral surface, you install like you install any surface, right? right. Um, so I think, let's put it another way. If you have the client buy-in and you have the willingness and a, and a relationship with a contractor who will work with you on it, you might, you then have the space, I would say, to go in for some of those, you know, very high efficiency, but slightly specialized product solutions. If you don't, for those projects, maybe there are other things you can do that are less complicated, but would still make a difference. You want to try and make a difference on every project in whatever way possible. No project is going to be a perfect project. So stop trying for that. Start doing the right thing in as many places as possible. So talk to me about the alternatives. So you just said, okay, if you um, can't, you know, you don't have the willingness or the relationship to work on it with your contractor, there are other things that you can do. Can you give me an example of that? So, and, you know, yes, absolutely. Right. So um, let's structure it, you know, in this way. So you can go for, you know, great technology, completely different systems. So you want to use a heat pump system, 
you know, in your building or something like that, right? That's high client buy-in, high contractor skill, high level of knowledge expected from you as an architect or interior designer. You might have all of those things and more power to you, please do it, right? Or you might be, you might be at a stage where instead of a this product choice, you might make another product choice. So a carbon neutral surface is a good example of that, right? Um, in that case, you just want to make sure that it's installed responsibly, um, you know, and of course, in some cases, there's a cost differential. Some cases, there's not. That might be a factor for you. Um, you know, uh, there may be lead times, you know, to consider other things to consider. So you want to work with your clients on that and your contractors on that. Say both of those things are out of your, your reach. I think the, the minimum thing that you should do is, you know, survey your project before it's demoed, figure out what can be reused, where you can actually recoup cost for your clients and try and figure out what the local salvage resources are. Not just renovation angel who would come and take a whole kitchen, but there may be individual you know, pieces that could be salvaged and maybe your contractor will be able to work with you on that. If that means they have you know, less dumpster time um, to work with, if it means your client gets a few dollars back, you know, like there may be, so, Thinking about reuse, salvage is, I think, the next option. And then now another thing that's maybe a little bit granular, but maybe you have a contractor who can work with you on this, is thinking through how things are fixed to each other, right? Um, as far as possible, can we have, you know, you know, when you go into demo a project, Things are stuck together in a way that there's no way except for you to destroy that floor pulling the tile up. So now when you lay down your tile, can you, can you think of a way that the next person who has to demo it comes in and doesn't have to destroy the tile when they pull it up? So there's, I think, a whole range of things you can do, you know, from just no changes in product, no changes in budget, but just the way you do things can be a little different versus all the way to now let's invest in new technologies and new building systems to help us make a difference. So there is a spectrum of things you can do. Gotta be honest, I'd love to do a podcast just on the no changes in product and no changes in budget alternative, because I think that's your first step. And a lot of people, will, here's the thing. I think a lot of designers um, would love to be able to make their projects sustainable, top to bottom, but they obviously have hurdles and challenges, but the no changes in product and no changes in budget. And what you just talked about is how you actually put it together, lay it down so that the next person coming by, which we hope they don't rip it up because it's so beautiful, but they do. That's a, that's to me is, I, I haven't heard that before. So I'm going to be, I love that idea. And I'd love to be able to do something on that because I, as a designer may not know that. So there are all these alternatives that to be quite honest, I haven't even explored because I don't know. I'm thinking I have to buy a product. I'm thinking I have to go the high route, which is, you know, the sensors, things that are going to take time, effort, money, and also knowledge that maybe my contractor I've worked with forever doesn't have. So that's, I, I love that, Avi. That's, that's amazing. So thank you for sharing that because I, I got to be honest, that's something I would love to be able to blow out a little bit more for people. I'll say one more thing about that. Um, I really mean it when I say we have to stop expecting every project to be a perfect project. We can't let perfect be the enemy of good, okay? Um, I really, if there's one thing all of you listening today take away from this, 
we all want to design that forever home, okay? But here's the reality is that, you know, kitchen and bath renovations like grew exponentially over the last couple of years, okay? The, the real likelihood is that this amazing bath that you've designed for someone will likely stop working for them for one reason or another. A new family member, they move out, somebody else is going to move in. They chip the tile. Like, you know, there's just so many reasons why people undertake a renovation. They were constrained by budgets and now they feel they made a little bit more money. They want to, you know, be, you know, indulge themselves a little bit more. You can't take the fact that your project is going to be demoed personally. Rather, you should prepare for the fact that any project you're going to work on is going to be demoed because haven't you demoed enough people's projects, right? So, you know, if we start with that mindset, that's actually the very basis of sustainability in interior design is how do we, how do we acknowledge that our projects have a certain, you know, timeline? We want them to be durable but we want them to be easily deconstructable, easily reusable, and so on. So how do we work towards that? And that requires, as you said, no extra cost, no product substitutes, and so on. So I would, you know, the more creative solutions we can find there, the better. Um, while we're on this, uh, one more thing I will say is that, as you said, most people think, oh, to make my product project sustainable, I have to pick different products, pick different things, spend more money. That is true to some extent, depends. I mean, if you want to design a lead platinum home, you probably do have to do all of those things, but not every client wants a lead platinum home, thank God, right? So the, the question is, you know, how do you start to inculcate that mindset of sustainability? And here's another secret I'll tell you. Sustainability is not science even though there's science behind it. Sustainability is not you know, a spreadsheet. It's not a budget. It's design. It's creativity. How you lay a floor, how you, you know, put your cabin, cabinet work together, you know, how your um, you know, uh, range sits within your countertop, these are all creative solutions. If you have to pull up your entire counter to change a range, you've done something wrong. Right. So you like these are creative solutions you have to find. They're not going to come out of any sustainability um, textbook, database, product catalog, none of those things. They are about your creativity as a designer. So I love that because I, I think a lot of times, you know, the first place you go to is looking for new products um, or looking for products that are sustainable. Um, I don't think there's a lot of people that think about the way you put it together. So I love that, but I still think, yes, it's creative, but it might be something where you just need a little nudge in that direction or a little reminder that that's also part of sustainability. Right. Um, so I love that. And what, what I want to go back to is what you said about lead platinum. So let's talk about this for a second. So we all know there's all these sustainability certifications, uh, you say lead, you know, there's well V2, B Corp. Uh, cradle to cradle, fair trade. There's tons of things out there um, and it can be confusing. So how do I, you know, as a designer, even a consumer, you know, choose what's best for what I'm doing? What do I do? Um, do I go with one over the other? Do I, I mean, is it, am I going to have to do all this reading? Is there somewhere I can go? Or is there a suggestion that you have 
that makes it easier. So let's talk about the landscape of certifications as a whole. In general, there are two types of certifications. There's project certifications and there's product certifications. There's a third type, which is actually business certifications, which which B Corp is. So out of all the ones you mentioned, LEED is a project certification. Well is a project certification. Cradle to Cradle and Fair Trade are product certifications. And B Corp is an organizational certification. So first of all, I think in order to navigate the world of certifications, you kind of have to understand, you know, is your project as a whole going to, like, does it matter to your client that the project is a verified sustainable project, in which case you want to care about project certifications. Product certifications matter because, you know, your clients might, your clients might care about, but also you might care about it. So you might, you know, make those choices. There are different product certifications for different product types. So the same certification does apply, doesn't apply for surfaces that applies to lighting, that applies to, you know, walls and ceilings or paint. Now that is confusing. And there are people in our industry who are working on trying to resolve that confusion. Unfortunately, at this moment, it's still more in the commercial design space, but I'm hoping that it'll extend into the residential design space and then it'll become a little easier for all of us, right? But in general, I will say, what you want to focus on is not the certifications of the products, but rather what you're trying to achieve with the project. So if you want to make, if you've decided that what's most important to you is there's there's nothing toxic in the air, you know, for the people who are going to be in the home that you design for. Then you want to ask that question of any certification, right? So this product is cradle to cradle. Does that mean that it doesn't put any harmful chemicals in the air? The answer is actually no. Right. So instead of that, you want to look at, you know, some kind of red list free certification. But if what's important to you as a designer or to your client is, you know, the planet as a whole, we're consuming too much stuff, we want to make, we want to use less stuff, then you care about recycling, in which case cradle to cradle is the number one certification you have to care about, right? So there's no way around it. Um, you want to educate yourself. You can also decide certifications don't really matter to you, right? So in certifications exists, exists because we want to be sure that the claims that a product manufacturer is making are verifiable, that somebody has actually checked them and said what they're doing is true because, you know, there has been, you know, greenwashing in this industry, both by manufacturers and by designers. Let's just be clear about that. Um, right. So we just want to be sure that whoever is saying making a claim, they're making a legitimate claim. That's what certifications do. Right. So if you don't care about like that so much, but rather your care, you care about, you know, um, how projects are put together as we were talking about, then maybe you don't need to need, don't need to wade into that. But once you wade into it, you do have to gather a certain amount of knowledge to be able to navigate it. There are tools coming, um, but you know, you do need that basic knowledge. And again, all the organizations, NKBA included, ASID, IIDA, um, they do have you know, they offer CEUs and webinars on the regular to help you kind of navigate that space. You just got to get into it. Like when you started as an interior designer, did you know what 
you know, shower fixture was the best for what client already. You didn't. You learned. It's the same kind of learning. You gotta, you gotta develop that sense of what is good, what is better, and what is best. Um, and that'll come the moment you start to care about it. So um, let's get back to lead versus wealth. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, it, it, again, you know, you're much more well versed than I am, but those are m- mostly seem like commercial. I'm sure they're residential too, but they mostly have been a commercial. Um, you know, most people in commercials, you know, want to be certified leader or they want to um, work with well because I'm a company. I want, you know, that's what I want people to know about. So talk to me about the progress with lead and or well in residential. There has been some progress. So lead does offer lead for homes, has offered for a while. Um, and there are lead platinum homes, many of them in this country. There are, you know, I will say when a home wants to, when a homeowner wants to go for lead certification, they typically want to go for a very high certification because it comes at a cost. So that means they're already in for that money. Um, so that's just how the economics of it work out. Um, wow. However, let's get back to like, what are we talking here? When you say it comes with a cost, is it a 50%? I mean, just take your average cost of a home build remodel. What are we talking about? 50%, 30%? Like, are we talking how much of a cost? Is this only that you can only do this um, if it's a luxury home or you're in that stratosphere? I mean, this isn't for your average home builder, correct? Uh, that is true to some extent. Um, lead, Leads um, certification costs, um, you know, vary greatly based on project size and project type. Um, so it, it is an investment. It's not insignificant. Is it as much as putting another kitchen in? No. Um, so, you know, it really depends on how much you care about. Um, kitchen, Avi. Depends on the kitchen. <laughs> so, you know, it depends on the kitchen. Exactly. Right. So I think it's hard to say um, it is a significant investment. Now, there are lead certified affordable homes right so again it depends on the client and what they're what they're willing to invest in um you know typically affordable housing it's multifamily housing so like multifamily there are a few lead um there are quite a few lead certified projects um that's because the economics of scale work out there you know it's a little closer to how commercial design works because there's you know, quantity involved, there's, you know, scale involved and so on. So um, single family homes, I would say, typically lead projects get certified at a very high level because of the type of clients who go for lead. Um, Similarly with well, I will say, you know, well is not deep in the residential space. I I mean, I would say they're very light in the residential space. The one place where they do have a connection is in the affordable housing space. So if you are a designer, who are working in affordable housing or in projects that have an affordable housing mix. You know, you know, many cities now mandate some sort of mix on some projects. Um, then you might encounter then well might work for you because they have uh, both lead and well have um, agreements with um, an organization called Enterprise Green Communities, which is all about bringing sustainability to affordable developments. Um, so that's you know a third. Sorry to throw a third name in there, but that's the way that lead and well currently, I would say, in the most significant way, connect with the residential sector. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a, I I don't know that well, um, the way well, the well building standard 
is evolving, um, that they will be making a big foray into single family homes anytime soon. Um, you know, but lead definitely, you know, lead homes um, is a significant, um, you know, kind of uh, area for them. Uh, so, yeah, I think the residential space, this is just generally, you know, true. The commercial space has a lot of uh, built-in incentives for sustainable work. So we've, we're, seen, we're seeing systems and structures emerge a certain way in the commercial space, and they're not always transferable to the residential space. So I think for anybody who is a sustainability entrepreneur, <laughs> there's some opportunity here. Have you seen since, you know, residential has gained so much momentum and so much steam and commercial has kind of fallen off or had fallen off based on the pandemic and all this work from home? Do you feel that uh, a shift will be more towards residential? You know, you say that multifamily, but what about single family? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Have you seen anything in the last two to three years based on what's happened, um, you know, with commercial, with work from home and with the explosion, well, was in residential? Um, I don't think the the growth has been in the certification space. I think the growth has been in general awareness and in a change in approach. Um, I think a lot of, I mean, just as all of you listening today, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably one of, you're maybe one of the people who is interested in sustainable home design. Um, there are many people interested in that. I think um, because consumer preferences have shifted, um, and there's also a generational shift going on in terms of, you know, awareness around not just, you know, climate change, but also health, well-being, toxicity, um, equity. There's a lot of conversation around all of those topics. Um, you know, so I think there's there's a shift happening. And, you know, the residential space is, you know, a consumer-driven market. And um, in a way that in the commercial space, maybe is not. Um, and so I think there's movement. The movement is not in the direction of now all of us want lead certified homes, um, but rather we're aware we want to start making those small changes in our preferences, in our practices um, to move us towards it. One certification system that we've not talked about, which you know has somewhat of an overlap with kitchen and bath specifically is Passive House, because it's very much concerned with energy use. And of course, um, you know, the kitchen in particular, um, but baths to some extent do have some significant energy use. They're appliance heavy spaces, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, they're technology laden spaces more so than, you know, I would say many other spaces in the home. Um, and so uh, the Passive House standard has seen a lot of traction, at least it's already had a lot of traction in um, Europe and in Germany where it originated. It's gaining traction in the US slowly. Um, I hear about you know, homes that are being designed to pass a ballot standard, even if they're not being certified. There's a lot of that going on. So, but nonetheless, I will say certification is not where the action is at. The action is at changing consumer preferences. So let me just say this about Passive House. I understand what you're saying, but let's all agree that Europe is far and ahead away. I mean, they're far and away ahead of us um, in terms of when it comes to sustainability. Um, you know, pa I, I think Passive House is super interesting because I find that when people talk about it, um, their idea of it might be different than what your, uh, you know, the standards might be. And that's something else that I would love to do another podcast on and, and dive deep into that, because I do think there is this little bit, again, a confusion 
of what is considered passive house and what is not. Um, but I want to, I want to talk because you know we're, we're not running out of time, but we're we're close to that. But I want to talk a little bit about the whole generational differences because you do hear that a lot, right? You hear Gen Z, millennials, all about sustainability, boomers, not so. So when you talk to a designer, depending on who they're designing for, and most of them, let's all agree, are probably designing for boomers because they have the dollars to be able to do it, where some millennials are going into that space. Um, you know, but I also find that, you know what, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I I, I would love to know what your thoughts are on that. Where is there a real generational difference? Um, don't we all want to be sustainable? Um, or you know, am I wrong? Like, what are your thoughts? Okay. First of all, let's all admit generational differences were invented by marketing people to help us um, sell things better. Like this whole Gen Z thing, boomer thing, they're all marketing concepts. Okay. So, but they're useful to help us look at broad trends. So you, just because the trend says that Gen Zs care about sustainability and equity and boomers do not, doesn't mean that your Gen Z client in front of you is going to pay more for sustainability or that the boomer client in front of you is going to be a, you know, is going to not care. That's not the way these these, um, surveys and statistics work, okay? They are just indicational. They tell us where society is headed as a whole. They have nothing to do with individual preferences. So please be very careful about that. Don't don't discount your wonderful boomer or Gen X generation clients uh, just because some survey said that millennials and Gen Zs care about sustainability. I mean, they also say millennials and Gen Zs have no money. So go figure, right? So um, you know, you 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 want to look. All, all, every good residential designer knows this. A career is built home by home, project by project, client by client. With some clients, you form lifelong relationships. You may only ever design one space for them in their life, right? With some clients, you are working with them over and over again, right? We are in a service industry and the client in front of us the people in front of us, the people we're building a home for are the most important people. They're the people that matter at the moment, right? So having the honest conversation with them about sustainability, I think is important without making any assumptions of where they might be on that. And, you know, of course, you as a designer sitting across the table from your client know best what is going to resonate with them. So just as you wouldn't try to sell, you know, a client who has very traditional taste on a glass and steel, um, you know, kitchen, like don't try to sell a, a client who's more invested in health, in, you know, their family's future, the health of their kids on climate change and carbon neutrality first feel your way to it. Have those conversations just like you would have conversations about other design choices. Don't impose your ideas onto clients. Have a conversation together because that's the way to success. Right. So it's interesting that you, you you know, we talk about health and wellness. Isn't health and, is, you know, is the way to talk about sustainability in a, uh, as health and wellness? Um, because a lot of what we do that's sustainable really does feed into health and well-being. Correct. 
So what are your thoughts on that? Talking about not sustainability in the forward manner, but talking about it as a component of health and wellness. As I said, you have to give people the reason to do the, to do the right thing. Okay. If you are convinced, every designer who's listening to this knows this. If you know in your gut what's right for this client, you know you're going to find a way to get them to that decision or you'll do your best. They may never get to it. They may change their mind, whatever, but you're going to do your best. It's the same thing with sustainability. Okay. Whatever it takes to get your client there is valid. It's fair. Having said that, here's the thing. Not everything in sustainability is to do with health and wellness. Not everything in health and wellness is to do with sustainability. You could build a home that's completely non-toxic, that's very supportive of the health of the people living in it, but it might have caused pollution somewhere else when those products were being made. It might be, you know, um, off-gassing into the neighborhood rather than inside the home, right? So it depends on what you care about, right? Mm -hmm. um, if your priority is the people who live inside the home, and that's totally fine, that's where your responsibility stops, you feel, that's great. Do that. Please do that, right? And so they're not interchangeable, but they are stepping stones to one another. And they're all, they're legitimate in their own way. So whether you want a carbon neutral, zero energy home, or you want a hundred percent toxin free, red list free home, both are great goals to have because, you know, eventually it's all going to even out is my hope. Um, we are not, we don't live in a world where we tell people how to live or what choices they should make. We can only stay one step, sometimes only half a step ahead of the culture. So, but that's up to us to, to stay ahead of the culture for our clients. I guess you haven't been in California lately, Avi, but yes, yeah. um, I'm just, let's, I'm joking. So let's, let's look ahead because we have a few minutes left. I want to ask you, let's look into the future. Biggest challenges in your mind facing sustainable design. The biggest challenge I will say is a change in mindset and for designers to find a way to do the right thing. Um, very quickly to elaborate on that. You know, doctors always know what the right course to take is. They might put three courses in front of you, courses of action and treatment, let you choose one of them. But in their mind, they know which one will get you to good health fastest it might be the most expensive. So, you know, it's, we have to get to that point. We have to be able to know what the options are for our clients, but always know that they have a choice in the matter and that's fine. But that mindset shift still has to happen. And I'm looking forward to seeing that, that really grow. Okay. Biggest opportunities. I think the opportunities are literally limitless. Um, as I said, I think there are, there's real room for somebody to make a breakthrough, make an innovation in how a kitchen is put together. If you find a way to put together a kitchen a kitchen in a way that like the next time your client wants to renovate it, it costs them less, they're able to recoup the costs and you're able to show them that, just imagine, you know, what your what that'll do to your business, to your bottom line, right? So the there's so many opportunities. That's just one. There, there's probably a million like that. 
And then I, my last question is turning point for manufacturer, most manufacturers and designers to embrace this sustainable future, sustainable design. What's what do you think the turning point is going to be? Because I don't think we're there yet, or else we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? No, we're not. I think the turning point has to be a confluence. There has to be a confluence of a large enough cultural change, a critical mass of opinion shift. Already two-thirds of Americans say that they feel the effects of climate change in their communities, right? Regardless of political affi affiliation. Um, not, almost all Americans agree that they want their families to be healthy. They might have different ideas about how they get there, right? So I think one, we need large enough, large enough a societal shift. And the second thing for manufacturers, so the societal shift will influence design, will influence clients, will influence designers, and that will be definitely an influence on manufacturers. The other big influence on manufacturers is policies and incentives, um, right? A lot of manufacturing is based on how taxation happens, where manufacturing is affordable, what technologies are available to them, what materials are available to them. They work within a global economy. So, you know, some of those things need to change as well. So I think the turning point will be when policy and preferences come together. And I think that turning point is not far away. Um, even how far, in- How far, Avi? What are you thinking? Five years, 10 years, one, two years? I'm interested. What do you think? I would give it about within the five to 10 year range. I don't think the one to two year, I think the one to two year range, we're still going to be pushing. But I think the five to 10 year range, I mean, like we're seeing policies that are good for- climate, toxicity, one of those things in states across the United States, regardless of political affiliation, they may be called something else, but the effect is they're good for us. So I don't care who passes that bill or what, what the policy is, if, if it, you know, advances this. The same, it's similar with, um, you know, general preference around sustainability. So I will say definitely within the decade, We'll we've already seen a huge, I mean, just think about 2015 or 16 to 2022, um, you know, and I think we're going to see a similar acceleration over the next decade. Hopefully it'll be sooner than a decade, but I try to be pragmatic about these things. Yes, you do. And I kind of realize that there is no, you're not looking at anything through those colored glasses, Avi. Um, so we are running out of time. Uh, any last words, advice, um, thoughts that you want to talk about in terms of sustainable design? The only thing I will say is sustainable design is a creative challenge that's waiting for you if you're willing to take up that challenge. You will learn so much. You will find new uh, partners, new people who are as passionate about this as you are. It's a, If you're not already, you know, invested in sustainable design, there's a whole world out there for you to discover. So, you know, get on the journey with us because it's a pretty exciting place to be. Thank you, Avi. Um, and thank you all who've tuned in. I hope you walk away with a new idea. Avi, did you have something to say? Um, I just want to say um, that I, I would be remiss if I didn't um, quickly tell people that you know, at Metropolis, we're developing resources to help folks with this stuff all the time. 
Um, we have a podcast that's called Deep Green that's available wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Deep Green. And we've done several stories on housing and sustainability and equity. So you might want to check that out. Um, also, we are developing resources around both lowering carbon impacts as well as equity in interiors. Some of it has more of a commercial design bent, but definitely many of much of it is applicable regardless of what you do. Um, and so, you know, and then lastly, we worked with all the major interior design associations as well as some industry bodies. So ASID, IIDA, Interior Designers of Canada, um, IDCC, which is the Continuing Education Council, as well as NEWH, the hospitality industry body, to create the Interiors Design Pledge for Positive Impact. It's a great framework if you're an interior designer for you to you know, set as a goal for yourself. Um, and so I would urge everyone to check that out. Again, that's the Interior Design Pledge for Positive Impact. Thanks, Pam. So, I had to do those last minute plugs. <laughs> absolutely. But I'm going to ask you, like, where do people find that? Where do they go to find your podcast? Where do they go to find the pledge? The podcast is any app that you use to listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever you use. Um, just search for Metropolis Deep Green or just Deep Green. It comes okay. up. You should be able to follow us. The Interior Design Pledge for Positive Impact is available on the Metropolis website. But even if you just searched for that term, Interior Design Pledge for Positive Impact, um, that's available. Excellent, Avi. Again, thank you. Um, and thank you all. I hope you walk away with some new ideas or solutions about sustainable design and possibly continue the conversation. Avi would love that. So um, just want to say thank you, Decor, again, for your partnership on our NKBA podcast. We really appreciate it. Here's wishing everyone and their families a happy and healthy holiday. Bye for now. Bye.